to the Inspiring Leadership Podcast, where a unique lineup of leaders share their experiences, their strategies, and their lessons learned. I'm your host, Jonathan Bowman-Perks, and I'll draw out their leadership tips. Together, we'll explore the insights of this wonderful range of inspiring leaders. Each episode features exclusive interviews with Trailblazer CEOs, generals, and leaders in business, technology, arts, sports, and from entrepreneurs. Discover what worked for them, their secrets to success and to happiness, and how they've overcome multiple challenges. What helped these ordinary people achieve extraordinary results? And what is their mindset that drives and inspires others to high performance by their exemplary leadership? From CEOs to creatives, from visionaries to change makers, our guests share their personal experiences and their pivotal moments. They open up their upbringings and their vulnerabilities with an appealing sense of humility and humanity that have shaped their leadership that you experience today. Leadership takes many forms and can be found in unexpected places. Whether you're an aspiring leader or a seasoned professional seeking further inspiration, this podcast provides you with practical life tips, sound wisdom, and leadership advice. As one general said to me, you don't have time to make all the mistakes that I've made, so let me share my wisdom to provide you with shortcuts. Consequently, you can use the wisdom from my guests in your own lives and your own businesses to help you be a more inspiring leader yourself. I'm Jonathan Bowman-Perks, and the Inspiring Leadership Podcast starts now. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this week's Inspiring Leadership Podcast. I have a guest all the way from Atlanta, USA, and uh, a fascinating man. James uh, and I met on One Golden Nugget uh, through a mutual friend of ours, Stephen Foster. And I just found his life and his experiences, particularly in all the whole design area with Coca-Cola and things like that, so fascinating that I thought I'd like to invite him as a guest. So, James, would you introduce yourself? Tell us what you're doing now and just a little nutshell of what you did before. Hi, Jonathan. Thanks for the invitation. Great to be on the show. And uh, I guess I'm in Atlanta, Georgia. You know, I'm a Yorkshireman. So this is a very different uh, cultural and uh, temperature environment shift for me. Today, I have a network of creatives around the world that I call Known Unknown. Almost 10,000 now that have signed on to our platform and we build creative teams for brands. The reason I called it Known Unknown was because over my career, I've worked for the Coca-Cola company um, in a leadership role, design leadership role, and I was an agency founder. And I found that a lot of the great talent, creative talents in the world don't often get the opportunity to work on, you know, amazing briefs and amazing brands. So known unknown is really about, you know, introducing some unknown talents to known brands and, uh, and seeing what magic and what sparks can happen there as well. Fantastic. Well, that leads me nicely into my next question. I'm always interested in CEO type or leadership figures that have inspired my inspiring guests. And uh, I think you've got a lovely couple that we were talking about before. One in your days in Coca-Cola 
Uh, and another one with the amazing work you've been doing with the Prince's Trust. So tell us about a couple of inspiring leaders and why you found those people inspiring and who they were. Well, I think let's start with the Prince's Trust and His Majesty. And, you know, I think obviously we, we know him as our, as our, as our king and, and prior to that, the Prince of Wales. But I think my relationship with the Prince of Wales or the Prince's Trust goes back to when I was, you know, 18, 19. So I'm knocking on like 37 years now. I think what I've been trying to, uh, to understand and look for when I, when I look at someone like the then uh, Prince of Wales is his bravery and his vision and this idea that he came up with in the mid 70s to help young people uh, start a business. I mean, it's like it was like a, a, a startup incubator. I know it's very trendy today and it's very we're in a we're in a very much an entrepreneurial you know, way of uh, life today. But in the mid 70s, that must have been very, very difficult. And uh, he used his pension money from the Navy to kickstart the idea himself. So for me, someone like that, which obviously has a different role today, but, as, but, but over the decades has seen things, uh, whether it's to do with the environment or, or architecture, or in my case, you know, helping us start our business. Uh, I believe that, you know, as a, as a gentleman with great vision and bravery to do what he's done, I've learned uh, a lot from that as well along the way. Yeah, uh, and just in contrast to that, yeah, go, go, go on, yeah, just please. In contrast to that, someone I've worked with on a on a daily basis. So when I was at the Coca Cola company, um, I reported to the CMO, a gentleman called Marcos de Quinto, um, a seasoned leader, Spanish gentleman in uh, that was here in Atlanta. And I think what I found with someone like Marcos was his ability to take a huge organization like the Coca-Cola company. There was kind of like a fearlessness that we, we, we were 125 years old, but there were still things that we had never done. And Marcos was really inspiring um, for me because we were constantly looking for those, those, those stones that were unturned. Uh, doing things that at scale for a large organization like the Coca-Cola brand um, take, takes bravery because it's very easy to keep things ticking along and keep going because of the iconic nature and everybody knows Coca-Cola. But I, I really enjoyed working with someone who really wasn't satisfied with that previous success and wanted to find uh, new ways of telling a, a, the same story. Mm. No, it is two very interesting ones. We'll talk later on about Coca-Cola, but I think it is interesting that you've now become an ambassador for the Prince's Trust uh, with uh, the, His Majesty the King, Charles III. Um, tell us a bit about being an ambassador for the Prince's Trust. You know, you've been helped by it. So you're obviously now helping others through that. Yeah, I, I have to admit, I think when, when we were age 18 and I was with my uh, co-founder, Simon Needham, I don't think we were really looking at that point to you know, grow with the Prince's Trust and be a mentor and ambassador in, in our mid-50s as we are now. I think at the time, quite honestly, we were looking for a quick you know, influx of cash to buy this new technology called Apple Macintosh, which was kind of like you know, heading towards the UK. The bank said no, um, but the Prince's Trust said yes. And so what we realized was, you know, one, so we, we received a, a grant of 2,000 pounds and that enabled us to buy 
uh, a very early generation Apple Mac. I think that that two thousand pounds always, you know, any two thousand pounds is spent almost immediately on some level of equipment. But what the Princess Trust really gave Simon and I was this self belief, this confidence as young men, reasonably inexperienced, certainly as it relates to business. Um, we were artistic, but that, but but it, but the Princess Trust gave you these kind of almost wings that when everybody else was saying no, they said yes. So they believed in us. And I think now, you know, as I look across and look down and look, look sideways at other people in a similar situation, whether they're, you know, at the beginning of their career or the midpoint or seasoned, I think it's really around sort of like, you know, giving them a sense of belief that they can do something great, whatever that, whatever that passion is. So it's rewarding today to be able to work with young people in that sense and be able to sort of like, maybe it's coaching, maybe they're coaching me actually, but it's this idea of being able to give them the confidence to go on and achieve their dreams. Yeah, it is, it is so lovely uh, what has been achieved through the Prince's Trust and uh, what an inspiration he was to you. So, so here we have someone like yourself living a very successful life uh, having trained in your gym and had a swim in your pool in Atlanta, having grown up like me in, in Yorkshire. I was in Halifax, you were in Uddersfield. Um, we always had a saying in Halifax, come all L or Halifax, the good Lord deliver us. And do you know why they said that? Why you didn't want to be in Hull or Halifax? Do you ever know the story behind this? I do not, no. <laughs> no, so Hull and Halifax, or all and Halifax, had a gibbet and they hung people until about the 50s. They were the last two cities in the UK to hang people really? for any misdemeanors. And so you didn't want to get caught in all or Halifax. Otherwise, you really were going to be swinging from the gibbet. Um, so pretty grim times there. But yeah, you um, your life was sort of shaped in, in that environment. You mentioned to me earlier about your father. Tell us a bit about your father and and how it shaped the leader you are today and some other people who've shaped you on your life journey. Well, yeah, so adding another H to that little uh, duo, Huddersfield, um, we, we, we name these towns with a H and then we drop it, don't we, in Yorkshire, so Huddersfield. And so my dad was a, uh, an entrepreneur in, in, in that town. He was a car salesman. Um, before that, he started in engineering. It's obviously a very strong engineering town. He moved into, you know, he did some crazy things like in the late 70s, he, he'd, he'd, he'd read something about a skateboard craze in California. So he went to Germany and bought 20,000 skateboards and brought them back to the, to the UK. So he, he sort of jumped on these um, opportunities and he was always hustling, uh, you know, when, when something uh, attractive, if you like, or buying something, selling something. So I grew up in that environment and then the wider environment of Huddersfield with, quite honestly, at that time, and you would have maybe seen this in Halifax as well, is a lot of those mills and they, they, they were empty. They were playgrounds for, for kids with broken windows and trees growing out of the roof. And so they, it was almost kind of like the ghost of... The, the industrial era was still there in the architecture, but wasn't as thriving as it was, you know, 100 years before. So there was kind of mix of survival with my, my, my dad and our family in terms of entrepreneurial survival and then being in a town that looks amazing, but had not quite survived that 
that change over over from a from a manufacturing side at scale. Obviously, some people still do great work there, but you know, just as an industry at large. Yeah, and and how did you get into the world of being such a creative? I mean, we, we've heard about the chance you and Simon were given at the age of eighteen, but what what attracted you to that whole world? I think it was a combination of not being the most successful school kid academically, but art was one class, one, one uh, subject that I enjoyed. Uh, I, I was pretty good at it. And my art teacher at the time uh, at Shelley High School in Huddersfield, Mr. Cooper said, so obviously I remember all this because it's such an important meeting. He said, James, and I'm getting to like 15, 16 years old, why don't you consider art college? That would have never entered my head. Um, it didn't feel like a real career going to art college. It felt like, you know, okay, so I can just go and hang out and paint or draw all day. So at that point, I don't think I had any real, you know, kind of vision exactly of what that may result in, but it felt like at least I'd be playing to my strengths and I'm forever grateful to Mr. Cooper, if he's still out there, for, for recognizing in a young 15 year old that at least I had one, one uh, string to my bow. <laughs> Even if math and English and geography and history weren't my subjects, he'd identified one and, and that pushed me to art college, which then ultimately allowed me to study design and make a career of that. It is so interesting. I remember the um, uh, uh, fantastic TED talk by Sir Ken Robinson and his book was The Element. Uh, and he said that, you know, everybody has something which is their element, that they're in their element when they're doing their art in your case, or in my case, as someone who is dyslexic, perhaps it was my orienteering and my outdoors and navigation or people. And just like we're having a conversation now, I'm in my element now. You know, this is, this is not like a job. This is a calling, a vocation. I don't make any money from it. It doesn't stop me doing it because it then gives me so many connections and enjoyment of meeting really interesting people. And I think it was, yeah, the same for me in, in Halifax with certain teachers who believed in me, uh, mm -hmm. where I wasn't very good at many of the academic subjects and I was slow to pick up. I remember my teacher in Halifax told me at about the age of seven that I was thick and I was going to be a dustman because I couldn't do my maths and I couldn't spell. She didn't know I was dyslexic, uh, but, but that had quite a negative impact on me while there were others like my mother who believed in me and gave me a chance. But um, so you, you grew up and you went into business and industry. Just give us a little thumbnail sketch of some of the different things, including your um, your agency and things like that. Just just give us a bit of a flavor of of the shape of the leader you've become today. Now you're doing your consulting and your design and uh, your creative on the AI side. I think a combination of, so if I rewind, I'm, I'm a teenager, I'm at art school, I'm pretty good at, I love design, as you say, I was in my element, and I was really kind of like bitten by the bug of what we might call back then certainly was graphic design. Um, today we might refer to it as brand, brand design or the brand experience. And, and actually going to art college, I could have said to my parents, oh, I want to be in a rock band. It was just below a rock band in terms of like a career choice. But Design today is pretty much everywhere and everything that we touch. 
you know, it's been designed by someone, it's a product, it's an experience, it's a brand identity. So I think fast forward, you know, those 40 plus years, I would have never have guessed that design would have been such a important factor in everybody's life. Um, it felt like a great opportunity, but I also then was looking across the table at my dad being this kind of hustling entrepreneur kind of gentleman. And I thought, you know, coming, coming at around about 18 or 19, well, wait, what if I combine what I've learned at art college in a relatively short space of time uh, with sort of my, my upbringing and, and seeing my dad in this kind of like free role as a, as a car salesman. But what if I plug those two together and I, I'm, you know, I need a friend to do that and we'll, we'll go on this journey together. So that was really the, you know, the, the, the surroundings that I lived in and my, and my family and, and then attaching that to, to my element, to my passion uh, and seeing if we could actually make something of that, of that journey. And then, you know, Today, obviously now uh, growing that uh, career around being a, a designer and a, and a creative. Yeah, and the, the lovely thing is as you get older, you don't get uh, redundant in this field, but like in mine, advising and coaching CEOs and boards and top teams, you, you have more and more experience and, and you can pull all your connections together. So it's lovely how you've developed that. Um, thinking about your experiences over the years, um, many successes help us go on, but sometimes we have some pretty dark moments which have a huge impact on us at the time but looking back we learn a lot from it you mentioned a, a big historic moment which i'd like you to talk about in uh, in in a moment itself and, and then some of the, the the disappointments you had and how you handled those so so firstly tell me about the historic moment and where you were at that time yeah, I like to think when it when when there's a question, there's a there's a big answer, and maybe there's a small answer that is more meaningful for me. The big one would for us be 9/11. So I was unfortunately there on September the 11th, uh, 2001, and we were we were an independent graphic design studio, and of course it impacted the world, it impacted everybody's lives. Um, so being there, but purely from a business perspective. How do we, you know, the, the, the days and weeks and months afterwards, how do we survive? It felt like everything had been pulled away. We had no kind of cushion, financial cushion or, or client cushion to hang on to. So we had to make some very, you know, quick, relatively quick, uh, important changes. You know, I think at the time we were around about uh, 250 employees worldwide which was a, a, a fantastic team, but there's no way we could sustain uh, that level of, a, of, of headcount, if you like. So the, it, it forced us to make some very, very difficult decisions, painful decisions in order to survive as a business. So there was the event that took place in the world. And then there's all these micro events that everybody had to deal with um, in their own in their own world, and and we had to deal with that in a way that was very difficult for Simon and I. We'd never been through that. All we'd seen in the previous fifteen years of our agency was year on year growth. Um, so we got used to that. We got comfortable, and then all of a sudden we needed to change it and and adjust everything to survive. So that was a that's a, that's a difficult point in anyone's life to be able to do that. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and then on a simple day-to-day level, you know, losing a pitch, losing a client, um, maybe not designing something that could have been more impactful. You know, th- there are these almost kind of like these uh, small small blows, if you like, they're not going to ruin anybody's career. We're not going to kind of, the, the, the house won't fall in and, and, at a brand and, and so on. Everybody, the show goes on, but there are personal things where if you lose a pitch and your team is disappointed and we felt we'd won it and we have to go in the next day when we were all working in offices, studios, and pick everybody up. I guess not not similar to being a football manager, you get thrashed 5-0. How do you pick the team back up? You know, they're all looking at the, the leaders of that studio to for, for direction. So, but I find that those moments are also great, uh, great moments to kind of like, you know, sharpen a new skill in, in some sense. Yeah, no, very interesting. And uh, I'm thinking about Ted Lasso, of course, if you've watched the series, which I so, so much enjoy on... Uh, I think it's on Apple um, and as the football manager from America with uh, Richmond FC, this fictitious club, uh, how he picks them up. And even his son, when his son takes a shot at goal and misses and he, and he goes, you know, be a goldfish. Don't worry, lad. You know, just 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 enjoy life. Uh, I, I think it's important how you cope with those setbacks and those disappointments and what you learn from. them. I was just interested going back a moment. Your agency that you're in was in New York. Uh, and you were, I, th- I understood you were saying, almost living in the shadow of the Twin Towers. Were you physically there when they got hit by the aircraft? And, 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 and if so, did you, how did you get out and what happened? Yes, yeah, so uh, I guess on September the 10th, um, uh, I stayed uh, very, relatively close to, to the towers in our, our company uh, apartment flat. So I got up on the morning, I went down the subway at the World Trade Center around about 8 a.m. So I was at least five, six, seven tube stops or subway stops away. I was in Soho. I came out, you know, and then I looked up and, 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 a, and a plane went over overhead. So, and then there was a bank. So that is relatively close to, but but not, too close that I was affected by the terrible kind of you know events thereafter, but certainly from an emotional perspective, uh, and even a geographical, it felt like I could almost touch the towers from our, from our rooftop. So we watched the rest of the day unfold, like everybody watched on CNN. We we were watching it live on our on our Soho uh, studio rooftop. So you know we'll never never leave my memory, of course, and anybody else's, but certainly you know, to be there and be that close to it, you know, it actually makes me feel close to the city as well and the people and, you know, but but also being, uh, having to cope with something like that after in the aftermath of, uh, of 9-11. Yeah, just, uh, I, I can remember now, I was with the Department of Work and Pension doing some work for them in a building in Leeds. And I, I remember people being gathered around the TV and I came and looked at it. And I saw the events unfolding. Most people at that of that age at that time can remember. And I remember thinking, you know, here I am up on the 20th floor of this building. You know, what's going to happen? Is someone going to plow into this building? And it's a silly, irrational kind of thing. But, you know, our planes going into high rise buildings everywhere. Um, but just the, the horrors of seeing that um, it stays in your memory uh, all your life, in particular when you're so close and, and you knew people in that part of New York. 
thinking back to the the impact on our lives um i'm just thinking back to when you were 16 to 18 years old when you got that grant from uh the prince of wales and his organization the prince's trust two thousand pounds to get yourself an apple mac um it's interesting the conversation we had about now we, you're you're getting involved with ai with design and and how looking back you said that the internet the apple mac those were two big events and how humans have made use of it and now you see a third one as being like artificial intelligence um before i talk about any advice to yourself when you were that age knowing what you know now in your in your late 50s giving advice to the young uh the young james if you go back to the future in your delorean before that, what, what do you make of the power of AI now and how we can harness it as, as leaders? Well, I think obviously we've all seen, read and, uh, and, and seen things every day in, in this space in different ways. Uh, there's certainly no putting the toothpaste back in the tube. I think it's here. It's how we embrace it. Uh, whether we rebel against it as, as humans, if you like, or whether we actually just see it as a new tool. I, I, you know, I've read stories of when the camera was invented, you know, canvas and art was dead, you know, because the camera would create the perfect picture. Well, we know that that's not true. So I think now with AI, it's for me, it's not about replacing, you know, certainly my field, the designer. It's providing the creatives new tools, just like the Apple Mac, just like the Internet, just like something else that may have enhanced uh, uh, the way that we work. Um, and changed it. So I think embracing AI uh, from a from a sort of a uh, you know it's here. How do we use it? What are the tools? How can it change uh, my day? What could it bring? How could we use it as a team or individually? So for me, I think this next decade uh, is going to be very much shaped by uh, by this type of technology, which will affect every industry, no doubt. I imagine it's coming up on every earnings call. You know, in 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 every in every uh, public company right now. Yeah, yeah, no, that's so true. And what about the advice to the uh, the young James? Knowing what you know now, if there was a, like one tip, do this, James. But look, don't worry, lad. Those things won't matter in your life as you go forward. What would be your advice to a young person now? Well, I think when I was eighteen, nineteen, it was all about thinking big. You know, there's a naivety there. You know, we want to be successful. We want we want a brand new car at age 21. We want everybody to know that we are achieving our... Um, actually, what I'd say to my 16, 17-year-old self now is think small. Um, think about the detail. Think about the, converse, the intimate conversation that you're going to have with a potential employee or a potential client. It's the small things. Whilst we may be young and ambitious and want to achieve and climb Everest, I think it's those small steps that will allow us to get there. So there's nothing wrong with thinking big as we are as an entrepreneur, as a young as a young ambitious uh, designer, but at the same time, don't forget those those kind of smaller moments, which quite often can be overlooked because of this kind of like you know wide-eyed uh, young uh, creative looking at nothing but just you know wanting to grow something very big. Yeah, I love that. Nice, nice advice actually. Uh, to to think small, it's the it's the small things that people remember. As someone once said, uh, people forget what you say, they forget what you do, but they never forget how you make them feel. And uh, so the way you have those conversations with people and the, the attention to, to small details, very important. 
Um, now, the, we're going to go around the Inspire Leadership Compass and, and look at one or two of the elements of what makes high-performing leaders in our research that my wife and I have done. And the, the first one was moral quotient and integrity and your values and what you will and won't do. Um, it's so interesting now looking back on old films of doctors, you know, professional doctors in white coats saying, I smoke camel cigarettes and they're the best brand and I recommend them to you. And we go, really? What was that generation doing? Now I reckon when people look back on the 2020s, they're going to go, why were they eating so much ultra processed food and all that sugar and those fizzy drinks? Uh, how, how in your mind now, knowing what you know now, do you look back on the whole Coca-Cola industry and that, that don't worry, this is part of a balanced diet. And the fact that, you know, a third of the children are obese now has nothing to do with fizzy drinks and ultra processed food. Because uh, you're a man who likes your fitness and you've, you've been a runner over the years and swimming and things. How, how, do, you, how do you reconcile those, those things and working in that industry? Well, it's funny because you also mentioned someone else who was also a client of mine before Coke, and that's Camel. So I've really, you know, I've really been going after the the uh, the brands that maybe are not meant to be in our lives. But I think with a Coke, and you, you also touched on something around, you know, the quote that you just mentioned about it's how people feel. Great branding is not a logo or a color or even a nice glass bottle or a fizzy this. It's how do we feel when we are engaged with this brand? And in thinking Coca-Cola's world, it is about feeling more positive. It is about kind of giving yourself a treat, feeling happy, getting that uplift both mentally and physically because it, it is a kind of a sugared drink. But I think this idea that it's not about, you know, uh, drinking five, 10 Cokes a day or a week. Um, I don't have as much Coca-Cola now because I'm not in the building, but I still enjoy a Coke and I want it to be the perfect serve. And, and that for me, that would be, you know, a glass bottle uh, poured over ice with a slice of lemon and it would be real Coke. Um, so I, I, I'm perfectly, as someone at my age, who's still very active, uh, perfectly comfortable f still having a Coca-Cola. I'm just not guzzling it every day, all day. You know, I don't think that, I don't think any food, any beverage, anything in, if it's, if it's over-consumed will be that, will be that great for us. But, you know, in, in, as you say, in a, in a kind of a, a, a modest uh, kind of amount, um, I think a Coke's fine. Um, I'm still a big fan of it. Yeah, no, I, I would expect you to be so because we have to, as humans, we have to sort of rationalize with ourselves what's going on. But um, the, the white death, as they call sort of sugar and highly processed flowers, are, are going to be as they get more and more research into this, really asking the question why are so many of the most poorest and the most in need, particularly on food stamps and things like that in America, all they tend to buy with it is lots of fizzy carbonated drinks, ultra processed food. There's no fresh vegetables. There's no, there's no healthy options um, because they're in food deserts, or whatever it is. It's a whole area, which Michelle Obama in her book, which I've just finished reading, Becoming spoke about, particularly in the black community where there's mass uh, obesity, type two diabetes, uh, and, and a lot of problems, type three diabetes, which is of course uh, Alzheimer's, you know, 93.5% of Americans are metabolically unhealthy. 
because of the standard, you know, the sad, the standard American diet. And of course, there's a whole battle going on for who controls the airwaves and who controls what people have and what's good for them. So it is, James, as you can imagine, a much bigger topic. But uh, I'm pleased that you found a way of, of having uh, an ability to limit it. But too many of the people I know and see don't. Uh, and it has catastrophic impacts on the health service and the, the trillions and the billions that spent downstream helping people whose diets have gone badly out of whack. Um, purpose and meaning. Uh, all the different things that you've done over the years, James, what, what's, you know, what today gives your life meaning and purpose in what you've done and what you do now? Well, I think on the professional uh, front, I think, you know, connecting with, um, you know, seeing other creative professionals grow in their own world. Uh, if we go back to our agency, Attic, Simon and I, at our over, over 25 years, employed over a thousand people in and out, you know, at different times. I think when I look across that group now, for those that I, I still know, it's very, very rewarding to see how many of them have gone on to be very successful in their own organization. They've started their own agency. They're flying high in a corporate role as a, as a creative leader. And maybe they joined us as, as a straight out of art school. And so that for us, being part of their journey in many ways, and in, in many instances, being the first uh, job that they had and now seeing how successful how they are contributing back to the industry and the world I think that makes it very rewarding much more rewarding than what I don't know seeing our work in Times Square or Piccadilly Circus which is always a little bit of a buzz for designers but it's the human impact I think that we are you know we look back and go wow it's just great to see that group of people doing so well in their world. And and that was the thing that struck with me um, in looking at your portfolio. You've got some amazing, cool designs which have gone out there into the world and sort of people know them. What what would be, uh, is it some of your Coca-Cola work that is the, some of the designs that uh, have been flashed up on screens everywhere and on bottles around the world? What what, what are the ones that you're proudest of that, that people, you know, see as an iconic uh, design that you were involved in? There's a couple of products for Coke that um, I think are, you know, uh, are, are great. One is that the Star Wars experience at Disney. Um, so if you were to visit Star Wars and you go, I, I, if you were to visit Disney and go to the Star Wars, uh, you know, experience, you'll be able to buy a Coke, you, you know, but you're meant to be in the movie. You're meant to be part of you know it's not like there's a there's there is a refreshment center but the bottles and the packaging so we had to design what would coca-cola look like and sprite and dasani but what would these products look like if they were in the star wars movie um couldn't use the coca-cola logo in its in its purest form so we had to adapt that to be more in the font and the and the uh, typeface that is used in star wars so you kind of got this interesting mashup of a, a story and uh, that we all know so well called Star Wars and then an iconic brand that we all know so well called Coca-Cola. What does the solution look like when you bring them both together? 
So I think that if you're ever in a Disney park and you visit a Star Wars, check that one out. That was an interesting project. And I think the second one that, that, that I always, uh, you know, look back at with fondness is what we would call the love can. And this first came out in 2017, I believe, um, in Australia. And Australia were having a marriage referendum. I think it was called, and it was, you know, to vote on same-sex marriage. So many brands were coming out in support of this referendum. So, and Coke were no different. So they wanted to produce a, a, a Coca-Cola can that said love. Uh, on the can and they choose the kind of you know typical uh, kind of uh, Roman typeface you know that that would be uh, approved by the Coca-Cola team well it came to our design team and I felt that there was just a great opportunity so for the first time in the history of Coca-Cola we persuaded the legal the legal team at Coke to allow us to use the Coca-Cola script to write the word love in that script um, Coke had never used their logo for any other word. Um, now, we may see it on T-shirts, on you know, in the black market and saying other words, but as far as an endorsed word by the company, it never been. And I had to pitch this to, to legal, uh, the legal team at Coke as to why. And, and my rationale was, you know, it reflects the brand's uh, purpose and mission around happiness and togetherness. It's not a trendy word. I'd like to think even in 125 years, love will still be fundamental to the human race. So it's not like we're just jumping on a buzzword um, and it's universal. You know, whether you're in Australia or whether you're in Austria uh, and, and I've seen now that, that piece of packaging and that, that reference to that grow globally beyond just that particular referendum. So it felt like the right thing at the right time. And thankfully the, uh, the, the legal team at Coke allowed us to do it. And, and I guess it will live in their archives. Fantastic. No, it's something you can be rightly proud of. That's just great. Um, we were talking before we uh, started recording about um, your morning swim and, and and how over the years you've done a couple of marathons and things like that. So what uh, is your tip to people now about, you know, one tip on physical health and one tip on brain or mental health that, that you it's worked for you and you'd pass on to others? And I actually think they go together, right? Because I think part... I still work out. I still go for a run around. A, I've got a wonderful park down the road. So, I'll, you know, I'll kind of do some lengths. I'll do some weights. But it's a, it's a combination of there's a physical need as I get older, no doubt, to still stay in shape. But I think what I find is that the, the mental reward from a good workout, that could be yoga, that could be cycling, that could be tennis. We all have different uh, passions. It's the sort of men, you know, so they're hand in hand. I think the physical side seems to be like the bonus, um, but it's the sharpening. And, and for me personally, I like to work out in the morning rather than at the end of the day. I think it sort of acts as my caffeine, quite honestly, to give me that fuel for the rest of the day and, and, and you know, hopefully bring my game. So for me, my, my personal tip would be, you know, regular workout in, in the chosen sport of, uh, uh, of, of whatever that may be, activity. And in the morning, um, I really find a, a great benefit from doing that every day. Yeah, no, it's, it's great advice. And the two are so inextricably linked. Um, uh, and it's important you do enough 
but not too much. Um, I, I was joking with you earlier about doing 500 kilometers in five days. And I must say, uh, at the age of 61, that was quite a strain on my body. And it was crying out for a while, wanting rest. But then I gave it a next day and a next day and a next day back to back. Um, so, I, I, But I think as part of an overall living longer, and I'm fascinated by the whole topic of longevity, um, I, I think one in which there's that combination, as you said, of weights and running and cardio and swimming and a bit of tennis and some fun activities that also give you that endorphin, dopamine, serotonin buzz, I think is very important. Um, EQ is the, is the next one, James. What, what about, um, you know, you have to listen to clients and various people who are trying to explain what they want, and then you have to create something from those ideas and that idea. What, what's been a, a tip you'd give your, as far as listening well to other people? What would you give as a tip? I think quite often from a creative um, solution perspective, the answer's often there in front of us. When I say us, myself and a client, myself and a brand team. And so we all go in search of this new big idea, uh, this new big brand kind of message. Um, but in actual facts, nine times out of 10, the solution is very close to home. Um, because it then feels authentic, it feels real, it's something that maybe an organization or a brand is recognized for, so it's not about reinventing the wheel and creating something that, you know, is trying to keep up with the trends of this or that. Um, I love also to look back, certainly with more iconic, you know, uh, brands that have been around 50 or 100 years, look back at what made them great in the beginning, what made them you know, this, this uh, you know, whether they're a, a technology company in the 50s doing great things. We talked about Apple, um, you know, Coca-Cola once upon a time was a very entrepreneurial, you know, the founder was very, very entrepreneurial. So it's kind of like finding maybe where the magic was and, and not going on a sort of graphic trip down memory lane, but understanding strategically why that was then. And is there anything there that could be pulled forward uh, to re-engage with a new consumer, making it relevant in their lives today, rather than inventing something that maybe doesn't feel quite as authentic to the brand itself? That's fantastic. Um, I, love, I love that way of, of looking at what's just in front of you. And uh, often we go searching and scrolling around the place, looking elsewhere, but actually it's, it's right in front of you. And uh, the, the story of the diamonds in your own backyard, I think is a long tale in America, but the bottom line was you went looking for these diamonds elsewhere. They were actually in your own backyard. You just didn't know it. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's, it's a longer story, but uh, a great one. I, I'm interested in what I call CQ, collaborative cultural, cultural intelligence. How do you get on with people who are very different from you, James? I mean, there you are living different, very much different part of the world, different culture in Atlantic, Atlanta, Georgia, from where you grew up in Huddersfield. Um, how do you get on with people? What's your tip on getting on with people who are very different from you? Well, it's interesting. When I, when I left Coke in 2018, so I'd been at Coke five years. I had five wonderful, wonderful years. I definitely had a fear going into Coke. We can maybe touch on that later. But leaving Coke, I thought, right, OK, I'm the ex-Coke guy now. Uh, I'm looking to do some consulting work. 
I, you know, by nature, uh, I'm an introvert. I was a pretty shy teenager at school, but I, I, you know, I've sharpened that kind of skill set a little bit, and I, I'm more of a confident introvert now. Uh, the way I might describe myself. But this, I, I set on this course to say every year post Coca-Cola, I would like to meet 365 people that I didn't know the previous year. So whether it's a, a virtual conversation like this or a handshake or a quick hello a, a, on a train or a plane, this idea of putting yourself out there you just never know. Have a conversation with someone sat next to you. You know, take that call if somebody's, you know, sent you a message on LinkedIn to have a quick chat. And this idea of, you know, making connections with people can lead to great opportunities. Now, of course, 90% of them may not. 95% of them may not lead to a, an opportunity in that sense. But really what you are doing is you're, you're broadening your perspective on life. You're, you're speaking to a, a whole diverse group of people. I Ubered for a year in 2016 when I was still at Coke. Um, and, it was the, and it was a political year in the US. And I just kind of wanted to get the temperature of, of, of the town I was living in. So by Ubering for the year, I actually had two great conversations every day, one going to work and one coming home with people that I may never see again. But this idea of just being, being interested and, and showing interest and learning. And for me, it's like reading a book, um, just a great way to, uh, to bring me up to speed and share some stories from my world as well with people here. No, I love that one. I love that one. Uh, what, a, what a great way of doing it, 365 people in a year, new people you didn't know. Um, and talking about new people I didn't know, this is Willow, who is our working cocker. She's uh, 10 months old and loves to be part of all the podcasts. Um, mm -hmm. uh, resilience is the next uh, the next question I had for you. Um, you know, you, you've had some, as you described, some setbacks, didn't win some pitches, things didn't quite work out for life. What would be your... Um, your tip on how to pick yourself up in times of adversity. What's worked for you that might work for others, James? Well, I think picking yourself up, for me, those dark days, those days where you didn't win, those days where things are going wrong in every, in every part of the day, in every corner of the company, I think those are just great educational days. They have to be. These are the, these are the days that they do not teach you at school. They cannot teach you at design school. They cannot teach you, you know, they're just, they're, they're experiences. And we can either kind of, you know, walk around with our heads down and, uh, and, and feel sorry for ourselves and, you know, mumble and grumble, or we can put that down to experience. We could analyze why we didn't, you know, why it didn't turn out to be a great result. We could have fun around that, actually. Um, see that as an opportunity to just sharpen that, that, that pencil a little bit more in terms of next time. So, you know, the dark days are actually really important. They're really important days. We don't want them every day, of course. We don't want a recession every year, of course, but we learned so much when we were an independent uh, agency and at growing attic, every recession that came around every five or eight years or something like that, it felt like it was really tough at the time. But we came out of that healthier, stronger, maybe sharper in terms of our operations. So there's a reason for those days. And I think you can actually find goodness. There's a rainbow at the other side is all I maybe would say. Yeah, it's a nice way, nice way of looking at it. 
Um, uh, the final, just the last three questions, really, uh, James, executive teams. Uh, you, you've been with a whole lot of teams over the years. What What's your tip on what worked for you when you had to turn a team around where someone wasn't pulling their weight or that the team was a bit toxic, it wasn't kind of working together? Well, what have you found has worked if you were to share advice for others? Well, being a visual... Uh... Um, professional, if you like, I, you know, I, I just hate death by PowerPoint. If you, if you're in a team meeting, if I'm in a team, somebody else's team meeting, and I'm just faced with, you know, 20 slides with 15 bullets on, on each slide as to how we're going to win. I, for me, we, you know, and this is maybe something I'm tearing a page out of the Coca-Cola um, playbook is humans, we're storytellers, great brands are storytellers. And that's why, you know, that it's not about the product. It is about the product has to be good, but actually it's the stories that they tell around that. And I think in a team situation, in a leadership role, I love to be, you know, serving a leader who's a great storyteller as well, who could actually visualize things on slides and not put bullet points, can make us laugh, can make us think, can make us just kind of, you know, rethink in many ways. So, on my side, I would be relying very strongly on doing things that felt a little bit more in the storytelling world, highly visual, engaging with people on that level, because we've, we all love stories. We've been told stories since we were three, four, five years old by our parents, and we still go to the movies. So it's a winning formula if you can kind of like repackage and transfer that into, uh, into your leadership style. Yeah, and it is interesting. I. Um... One of my clients wants to be able to um, tell their story. He's a very much a data head, and you know he, he's such a clever, such a clever man and great problem solver. But but in in how he appeals to his customers, he needs to be able to tell his story. Do you find you get involved in doing that for people, trying to get them to make a story that they can uh, show through video or design or how he talks about it? Yeah, I think people want to imagine that they could be part of whatever that story may be. Well, I'll give you an example. I once saw a van on the motorway, uh, on the M62 actually in Yorkshire, and it said, you know, John, John Brown, painter and decorator, uh, telephone number, free estimates. Now, does that work? Maybe it does. Maybe it does. But if it said something like, you know, I make homes beautiful, John Brown painter then actually when you're reading that you think wow i want i actually want a beautiful home i mean I, my goal is to have a beautiful family and a beautiful home and so it's a but it's the same proposition he's just turned the story on versus delivered the facts the facts are he's a painter and decorator and here's his telephone number and he'll give you a free estimate well we know the facts what what are you what are you going to do to my life to make my world my small world my home more wonderful to live in so i think this 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 simple change from you know the factual side to the emotional side even whether you're coca-cola or you're a painter and decorator it's the same trick uh and it's how do brands successful brands do that really well yeah i love that one well i think there's there's many who really need that that skill of being able to to tell a story that appeals and sticks with people. Okay, um, last uh, penultimate question, uh, favorite book. Uh, why would you recommend that people listen or read that book that you read? 
I think, well, we've talked a little bit about running and marathons and keeping fit. So a book that I picked up before my first marathon in 2000 um, was called Running Within. Um, it's a running book. So I was training and I was kind of wanting a little bit of a sort of a coach, if you like. Um, but it, it's, I think its subtitle is A Guide to Mastering the Body, Mind and Soul. So the takeaway for me was not, it didn't just help me, you know, train for a marathon, but it actually stuck with me because many of the things that you would go through if you're training for a mar marathon are quite painful physically. You know, you'll hit that wall at some point mentally. You're climbing a hill, you have to get up at 6 a.m. in Yorkshire to run in the rain, in the dark, in November. So those kind of barriers that we, it's very easy to go, oh, I'll stay in bed today or I'll, I'll, I'll kind of keep you know I'll keep warm by the fire actually pushing yourself to do that for me that book was much more than a training guide for a marathon uh, there are broader things in life where we have these challenges and we have to overcome we have to get to the top of the hill then we'll have a nice run downhill at the other side so things like that and actually pulling that strength through your body up to your mind I found that very useful, much more useful than, than the marathon itself, which was great, but actually it's a, it's a life coach book for me. That's a really good one. I'll, uh, I'll definitely get that. Thank you. So um, finally, would you just introduce yourself, say the work that you're doing now, what you did before, uh, for your two-minute top leadership tip. Over to you, James. Hi, my name's James Somerville. I'm the founder of Known Unknown, and that's a global community of creatives around the world where we build teams for brands. Prior to that, I was with Coca-Cola as VP of Global Design, and prior to that, I had my own agency. So I think my top tip, and I, I spell those out because it's been about, all my life's been about change. And I know that change is something that we're all faced with every day, but certainly as an organization, as a brand, as, a, as an entrepreneur, things that we are, we, sometimes we're a little bit scared to go into this or, or, or do that. I think embracing change. Um, I love the quote, you know, most people, most brands like to be the first to go second. Well, sometimes it's the right thing to go first and test something and learn it. And we won't achieve perfection, but we can drive change in our culture, in our product, in our proposition to our customers and consumers. So this idea of embracing and seeking change rather than running away from it and being scared of it would be my tip. James, thank you very much indeed. It was great having you on the Inspire Leadership podcast and congratulations on all that you've achieved in your career thus far and, and the great wisdom and experience that you share with so many others. It was, it was a joy having you here. Awesome. It's been great being here. Thanks, Jonathan. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Inspiring Leadership Podcast. We hope we've ignited your curiosity, broadened your perspectives, and provided you with practical, pragmatic leadership tips, wisdom, and techniques that you can immediately apply from today. We're deeply grateful to our exceptional guests for sharing their stories, their vulnerabilities, and their insights. They and I provide this service to you for free. And all we ask in return is that you share it now with one other leader that you know, one other person that you know that you think will benefit from this so they can take away the inspiring leadership tips, techniques, and the wisdom provided. 
Please subscribe, follow, rate, and review us on your favorite podcast platform. We value your feedback and invite you to connect with us through my website, jonathanperks.com, and my social media platforms. My favorite one is to follow me on LinkedIn, but also you can use Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, especially on LinkedIn. Share your thoughts, your suggestions, and topics you'd like us to cover in future episodes. Your input shapes the direction of your podcast. And if you've been led by exceptional leaders, really, truly inspiring men and women, in whatever field you're in that you think have a great story to tell, please get in touch and make a suggestion and an introduction. We have a great lineup of people and there's a queue of great people waiting to share their stories with you. I'm your host, Jonathan Bowman Perks, and thank you for joining us on the Inspiring Leadership Podcast. Stay tuned for more fascinating guests that will fuel your own leadership journey. We'll be back sharing them with you next Tuesday. Tuesday.